following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. All right, well, good morning to you all. If you have a Bible, please turn uh, with me to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, then we do have uh, slides with... um, we have slides uh, with various verses as we go along. All right, so I've entitled this uh, sermon, Graffiti from Heaven, otherwise known as the writing on the wall. Graffiti from Heaven. Uh, I've got a picture of graffiti, if we can have the next slide, just in case you don't know what graffiti is. I realise that uh, it actually says Jesus saves sinners uh, in graffiti, but I realise that in Thailand you don't get much graffiti. So I thought there might be people here who don't know what graffiti is. But this is graffiti, uh, writing on a wall. Uh, it's not usual to have Jesus on the wall, of course. Um, graffiti from heaven. So uh, in, um, in England, where I come from, there is uh, a piece of graffiti that defends the artist's right to draw on a wall, saying that if God hadn't wanted us to draw on walls he wouldn't have set the example himself. Because in this chapter, of course, you find God writing on a wall. Uh, Some of the funnier bits of graffiti I've ever seen when I was at university in the north of England, um, I once went into a a toilet cubicle in the bathroom uh, and there was the toilet roll there and somebody graffitied on the wall, sociology degrees, please tear one off, next to the toilet paper. I hope none of you have studied sociology. Uh, the idea was you could just tear one off um, from the toilet roll. Uh, and um, once I saw a bathroom dryer, um, and next to it it said, press here for a message from the British Prime Minister uh, on the, the button. All right, so in Daniel chapter 5, so uh, a remnant of God's people are living in exile in, in Babylon. Uh, and uh, as you will know, the, the main character and the hero of the story is, of course, Daniel. But we also see the faithfulness of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And as the book of Daniel unfolds, we find God at work among his people. So faced with death for refusing to bow down to the gods of the Babylonians, God saves Daniel from the lion's den and he saves Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego from the fiery furnace. It's all very good Sunday school drama. But as the uh, Israelites or the... um, the descendants of Judah especially, uh, are in uh, Babylon, uh, we find that redemptive history has broken into a Gentile context in Babylon. And uh, salvation history is being, or redemptive history is being played out uh, in Babylon. But the focus in Daniel is not only uh, the faithful Jewish men that God has delivered from death, it's also a tale of two kings, certainly up until chapters. Uh, to the end of chapter 5. So in chapter 4, we have the story of Nebuchadnezzar, and in chapter 5, we have the story of his grandson, Belshazzar. So last week, we saw um, about King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the most powerful man in all the world. He was a, a warrior king who conquered this great empire. Got a slide, I think, here, showing you the Babylonian Empire with modern-day countries imposed on the map. You can see the size of the Babylonian Empire, very expansive, But Nebuchadnezzar, as we saw last week, he was full of his own self-importance 
uh, and he imagined that his power and his rule was down to his own skill and cunning. But we saw how God uh, humbled um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. So God took him from his throne uh, and through a kind of mental breakdown uh, and Nebuchadnezzar lived outside for seven years like an animal before he was restored to his throne. But through the experience, um, as Nebuchadnezzar is humbled before God, he acknowledges that the Most High King is the sovereign God of the world and that, his, and that his ways are just and right. So Nebuchadnezzar has this kind of confession of faith. Uh, he bows his knee to the King of the Ages. And I said to you last week that I think that one day we will meet Nebuchadnezzar in heaven uh, and we will hear all the details of his testimony. I think he became a believer. And so we come to chapter 5 of Daniel and it's all about the second king um, but this one doesn't bow the knee and he faces judgment. So after Nebuchadnezzar's death um, there were numerous family fights and assassinations which is very common in this part of the world as to who would ascend the throne of Babylon. Um, and what happened was that this, eventually this arrangement of co-regency emerged with um, a man called Nabonidus, who ruled alongside uh, his son Belshazzar over the kingdom of Babylon. So Belshazzar, although it says that he was the son of Nebuchadnezzar in the text, uh, I think that he is, uh, Belshazzar was Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. I think there are two reasons for that. One is that the, the Hebrew, ancient Hebrew, doesn't have a word for grandson, although some of you who are biblical scholars and linguists might correct me later, uh, but I think that's the case. Uh, and the text also um, calls uh, Belshazzar the son of Nebuchadnezzar in the sense that he descended from the line of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, just like Jesus was the son of David. Although, of course, um, he wasn't, uh, David wasn't his, his biological father. So I've got four headings in, in uh, my sermon plan. First of all, the drunken feast, my first heading. The second one is writing on the wall. Thirdly, Daniel arrives at the feast and then I've got some lessons for you. Do I keep stopping and going off and on? Oh, it's only what I can hear. Okay, good. All right, so first my first setting is the drunken feast. Let's read uh, from chapter 1, sorry, uh, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. <coughs> and we read this, that King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in, in, in front of the thousand. So here we have this scene, and you have to use your imaginations. Uh, Belshazzar holds this great feast. It's kind of the last roll of the dice for Babylon. Babylon. Because although you wouldn't know it from this text, um, only ten days previously, um, uh, Darius the Mede had defeated the the Babylonian army only about 50 miles, 80 kilometers away from Babylon. And Babylon, as the, the city of Babylon, is under siege at the present time. But its inhabitants, the inhabitants of Babylon, are confident that their city is impregnable. It's this great fortress city. It has walls that are very high, about 30 metres high, 100 feet high, uh, and walls that are 30 feet thick, so about 10 metres thick. So they believe themselves to be impregnable. So Belshazzar puts on this huge feast. So likely at the feast are all the great and the good of the city. This is the the stars of Babylon, the A-listers, as we might call them today, um, the celebrity couples of Babylon. As I was trying to imagine this scene, I, I thought about the Oscar ceremonies in Hollywood every year. 
to try to give me some inspiration. A great flock of people who consider themselves to be very important. Uh, they're there to impress one another. They're there for the ladies to show off their best dresses and their latest jewellery to compete for who dares to show off the most flesh on their bodies. Uh, and the conversation is, is, is light and trivial. Um, uh, the chatter centres around kind of virtual, virtual signalling as you try to um, get across your credentials as being part of one of the elite. So think of the Oscar ceremony as something to give you a kind of an idea of what was happening here. So, and seemingly Belshazzar, the, uh, the co-regent king of Babylon, lives the high life. Most likely he's a kind of classic playboy, a lover of carnal pleasures. He has his wife here and his concubines and the wine is flowing freely. And he's the centre of attention, just I guess what he likes. And you wonder what could possibly go wrong. Now, we need to remember that growing up in the royal, the royal household of Babylon, Belshazzar would almost certainly have heard about the true God. But seemingly, at some point, Belshazzar has uh, stored the, the, the information away in his mind somewhere about the true and living God, and he's put it into a file marked irrelevant. There was no sense in Belshazzar, as we've just sung, about the gravity of God in any way. And the stories of the Jewish exiles being saved from lions and fiery furnaces have long been forgotten. This was a different time and a different generation. Uh, talk of the high God and his everlasting kingdom are no longer heard in the royal court. And Belshazzar does this crazy thing. So look in verse 2. It says, Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. And then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now, so, Nebuchadnezzar calls for these uh, cups to be brought to the feast. Now, these weren't any cups. Um, if you know the Old Testament, you will know that uh, everything that was in Solomon's temple uh, was de- had been designated as a holy, as a holy item. Um, and these cups had been set apart for Uh, sacred duties in the worship of Yahweh. So they were used to cleanse the priests who offered sacrifices uh, and these cups pointed ahead to the feast at the end of history, that great messianic banquet uh, which the Bible will later call uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's what they pointed ahead to. But nevertheless, uh, Belshazzar is, um, I think of him as a bit like a kind of silly schoolboy. He's a bragger. He wants to show off. He wants to swagger in front of his guests to show how big he is. Uh, And so um, he calls for these sacred cups and they toast the gods of gold and the gods of silver and of bronze and of iron and of wood and of stone. It's a scene of drunken contempt for the king of heaven. Nothing less. If you want a parallel, this keeps slipping down, um, if you, want a, sorry. if you want a parallel, 
uh, from today then, of a kind of contempt for the living God, uh, then think of the, the films, the movies that come out in our day and generation, or think of Netflix and their dramas, or Amazon, their dramas, where Jesus Christ is the most commonly used word, or the most commonly heard word, but almost always is a curse word. So the most holy name of all is cheapened, it's dishonoured, it's desecrated by producers and scriptwriters who think themselves who are very clever. Um, but as we know from the Ten Commandments, know that God never leaves anyone guiltless for misusing the name of his Holy Son. And one day they will all be brought to account for misusing that name, for cheapening the name of Jesus Christ. That's the kind of context that we have here. So there were many things that were present at this feast, at Belshazzar's feast. But the most important thing of all was missing. There was no sense of the fear of God. So here's my second heading, writing on the wall. So in verse 5 it says, Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote <coughs> excuse me, on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's colour changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Now, thankfully, we live in an age, uh, mostly anyway, where God is patient and the wheels of his justice uh, turn slowly, allowing time for repentance and for many to come to a knowledge of the truth. But here, in this context, when Belshazzar toasts the gods of gold and of bronze and of silver, judgment is instant. And as they begin this collective act of of desecration of holy things, The text tells us that immediately the fingers of a human hand appear on the wall, uh, writing on the plaster. I suppose that, I think really what happened was that uh, this hand engraved into the plaster um, words, which I've called graffiti from heaven. So imagine the scene, the the master of ceremonies, he picks up his program for the feast to see if this is a kind of planned act, is this some act by the magicians, but he finds that there's nothing in the script for this to occur. And the king sees this hand and he wonders if his um, wine has been playing tricks with his mind. Um, but the text tells us that his colour changed and his thoughts alarmed him and his, his limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Uh, I think I've got um, Rembrandt's picture, Belshazzar's Feast, 1636, to give you some kind of an idea of the scene, an artist's impression of what happened. So you have to imagine the scene. The music stops, uh, the laughter stops, and the room uh, goes from, in a moment, from merry, sorry, from drunken merriment to stunned silence. That's how quickly God's intervention can change a situation. Uh, and Belshazzar goes from acting the big man to acting like a little boy. Their dream world is suddenly interrupted because here is a word from eternity. And so what does Belshazzar do? Well, he does what his grandfather before him had done. He calls for the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, and they arrive. And um, in his terror, he makes these gigantic promises. In verse 7, second half of verse 7, he says, whoever reads... 
This, this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And verse 8, Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his colour changed and his lords were perplexed. And so the wise men of the land, so the wise men of the land are unable to read the writing or make known its interpretation to the king. It's interesting, isn't it, that the wise men came in and they couldn't interpret what was happening and I was thinking how up-to-date the Bible always is. Uh, So we live at least 2,500 years after this event, but we face exactly the same situation. The wise men and the wise women of our age Every day, they demonstrate their utter inability to interpret our world properly. You switch on CNN or the BBC, you listen to the journalists, the analysts, uh, you read the newspapers of the day, you read the philosophers of the last 100 years, 200 years, uh, the ones who've shaped our collective thinking, you, you find out again and again their inability to interpret the world correctly. And the reason is simple. Because most of them are secular and they treat God as if he's irrelevant and the Bible is some kind of a myth and they just fail to understand the world and grasp what the world is about. I remember when uh, Prince William, the son of the present king of the United Kingdom, Prince William um, was interviewed after the Russian invasion of Ukraine and he said, I just can't understand how this invasion this war could have occurred in the 21st century. It's incredible the the deep naivety of somebody who should know better. Because if you read the Bible, you will be left in no doubt about the capacity of human beings for war and for evil. And in fact, in Revelation chapter 6, you have the four horsemen of the apocalypse, conquest, war, famine and death. And and the lesson of Revelation chapter 6 is that they ride right throughout history all the way to the end. You don't get a break from them. You see, the Bible constantly gets it right. But if you ignore the Bible, then you will not understand the world. And then we look at chapter, sorry, verse 10, where the queen arrives. So in verse 10 it says, The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your colour change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. So, the queen, who many commentators believe was the, was the widow of Nebuchadnezzar, she comes into the room, she's the only one with any wisdom in this situation, and she bravely speaks up, uh, and she mentions that uh, this kind of situation has happened before, And there is a wise man in their kingdom um, who is able to interpret mysteries, he's able to interpret dreams and and resolve issues like this. So she's learned, she remembers what's happened in a previous generation and how he helped. She says to uh, Belshazzar, your grandfather, he can interpret dreams and explain riddles and solve problems and... um, and my third heading then is, Daniel arrives at the feast. You can, I, I kind of imagine Belshazzar, uh, Belshazzar, uh, Belshazzar um, uh, he uh, is a kind of trembling wreck, and he says something like this, fetch him, fetch the, this man. 
Um, so they call for God's prophet and, uh, and, uh, and wise man, Daniel. I think there's some encouragement here because um, I really believe that there will come a day in America and in the United Kingdom and, and in other nations where the man with the word of God in his mouth uh, will be called to, to speak to the elites of our nations. That might seem inconceivable now, but I think so catastrophic will be the mess that they are creating in our nations that one day we will hear the man with the word of God in his mouth because they will realize in their despair, they will concede that they need wisdom from another world. And that's what we see Daniel doing here. He comes with wisdom from another world. So Daniel arrives at this drunken feast um, and he is 86 years old. And I think that's a great encouragement to all of us that God is still using him at 86 years old. Uh, From the book of Daniel, we only find four occasions when he's kind of publicly doing amazing things, interpreting dreams or something like that. The rest of his life, he's just living a life of Ordinary faithfulness and godliness, which is what, how most of us live or should live. That the occasions when we do remarkable things may be very few and far between. And this is Daniel's fourth public occasion, seemingly. But he's 86 years old and God is still using him. And I want to believe that when I'm 86, if I get to 86 years old, that God will still be using me. I don't want to have this, any kind of illusion that I'm going to waste or any ideas that I might waste the last 20 years of my life on the golf course or tending my garden. I want to be serving the kingdom of Jesus right until the end. And here is Daniel doing exactly that. And so Daniel arrives. And the king says in verse 13, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. So, what we need to notice is that seemingly the king knows Daniel and he explains the situation about the handwriting on the wall and how the wise men of Babylon have failed to, to, to be able to read these words on the wall and to give the interpretation and he's told that he should be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold put around his neck and he should become the third ruler in the kingdom. And Daniel seems to be far from impressed by this kind of an offer he says you can keep your gifts and your rewards and give them, and, or you can give them to another. Here's Daniel's point. You can't buy this wisdom. And in, a room, uh, where, in this room where fame and status and wealth and power are everything, Daniel is of a, different, of a different order. He's a man with a different character, with different priorities. He's free from the power of all those idolatries that control the rest of the people in his room. And as ever, Daniel is bold. We talk about daring to be a Daniel. Daniel is bold. He's speaking before a thousand nobles, but he's unflinching with the truth. And he begins by giving Belshazzar, Belshazzar, sorry, a lecture. He explains how Belshazzar knew all that had happened in the time of his grandfather. He, ex- he tells him how, he, um, how Nebuchadnezzar had been drunk with his own power, but the Most High had humbled Nebuchadnezzar um, and brought him to madness before restoring him to his throne. And then Daniel says in verse 22, and this is, the, I think, that one of the critical 
text with which we have to, which controls the whole of the narrative here. In verse 22 he says, and, and, and this, and, sorry, and you his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted your, up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honoured. So, Daniel says, your grandfather was humbled, and then he was restored, and he came face to face with the living God, but he bowed to him. And you knew all this, says Daniel. Is the thing, you see, do you, do you really believe that Nebuchadnezzar living in those fields for seven years had been kept a secret? Now, I know that in those days there was no paparazzi, paparazzi uh, hiding behind trees with their zoom lenses to capture the moment. But the point is that in every age people talk. And everybody in Babylon would have known that the king had lost his marbles. It was a topic spoken of around every single well in Babylon as people drew their water. And even more remarkable was how he'd come back to his throne after his insanity. And, and Belshazzar had been brought up in the royal household. You know, the, the, the madness of Nebuchadnezzar and his restoration is the kind of story that a grandfather would have told his grandson. Of course he knew. And, and Daniel says, Belshazzar, you never humbled yourself like your grandfather. You knew all this, but in spite of that, you've lifted up yourself against heaven and desecrated these holy vessels, forgetting that your breath is in his hand. You know, some people believe, some commentators suggest that Belshazzar's problem was that he was drinking too much, that he had a drink problem. I don't think that's the issue here. The issue is that he deliberately defied the living God and it was a God that he knew something about. And so Daniel, having given uh, Belshazzar his lecture, he reads the words on the wall, mine, mine, tekel and parsin. And in verse 26, Daniel says, this is the interpretation of the matter. Mine, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So, quite obviously, it's not news that Belshazzar wants to hear. But he keeps his promise and he clothes Daniel in purple, a sign of wealth and royalty and status. A chain is placed around his neck and he's made the third ruler in the kingdom of Babylon for, for a few hours anyway. And then the chapter ends like this in verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. So as I mentioned before, uh, at this point when this feast was going on, Babylon was surrounded by huge walls which were considered to be impregnable. But there was one weak point in the fortresses of ba- the city of Babylon. The Euphrates flowed underneath. 
uh, the walls of the city. They went through the city to give it water and came out the other side. And the Medes, with, in help, with, help, uh, with help from the Persians, they, they dammed the, the river Euphrates, which is a very large river, and they diverted it around the city. And then they came through under the walls of the city of Babylon on the dried up river bed and came into the city and they killed Belshazzar and the history of the world passed from the Babylonian Empire to the Empire of the Medes and Persians just like was predicted in the, in the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had of that great beast, the statue of the beast or the man. So I've got two lessons from the text. The first one is this, that God holds us responsible for what we know. God holds us responsible for what we know. <clears throat> so I think that Belshazzar represents the person who grows up in a, in a family where somebody believes. In this case, it's his grandfather. So if we bring the application into the current post-Jesus era, as we are, uh, maybe that's you this morning. Maybe your grandmother was a Christian. Uh, and when you were little, she told you the stories of Jesus and you sat on her knee and she taught you to pray. Or maybe you're somebody who attended Sunday school in your younger years and you sang the old hymns. You heard about a God who loves you, a Christ who died for you and rose from the dead. Maybe you're like Belshazzar and there are many people who fit into this category. Uh, you knew the good news of Jesus and then kind of almost imperceptibly drifted off into a kind of secular world uh, because it was the accepted and fashionable and sophisticated thing to do in the 21st century. You convince yourself that your grandmother's ideas were just kind of old worldly ideas. They were old-fashioned. They were beliefs from another world, relics from another age. She was just out of touch with the modern world. And Belshazzar was like that. He'd heard the truth but he stored it away, as I said to you before, in a, in a memory file. And he wrote on it, irrelevant. He rejected the truth that he knew. And he suppressed that truth. And soberingly for him, he had no more chances. Uh, he rejected God's, the knowledge of God that he had. And if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, which it always is, then the opposite is always true, Mocking God is the height of folly. And Belshazzar calls for these holy cups from the temple and he desecrates them and God says, that's enough. And he snatches him off, in, snatches him off into eternity and into judgment in a moment. And this is the lesson. When God speaks to us, he expects a response. And he holds us accountable for that response that we make. You see, on a kind of big scale of redemptive history, God sent Jesus Christ into the world and he expects each one of us to respond to what he's done and he holds us accountable for it. Because just like Belshazzar, uh, and this is why he saw these hands, this is why God spoke in the shape of a hand, because he had to realise that his life was in the hands of the living God. Of course now we know that those hands are nail-pierced hands. 
They are bleeding hands. And our lives are in those hands, but they are hands that have given themselves. The Son of God has given himself He's to pay a debt that we owe, a price that we can never pay in order that we might be redeemed. And knowing that, the costly price of those pierced hands, God expects us to respond to that. And he holds us accountable for what we know. So Vance Havner, who was an American evangelist, a great man to read his books, in the 20th century, Vance Havner said this, um, slide, he said, Judgment is not in proportion to how many sins we've committed, or we commi- we've committed, but how much light we have rejected. And the same goes for nations as well. I think he's right. So the first lesson is this, from Belshazzar's life, is we must never play games with God. We must treat God with a holy respect and reverence because he's God. He's a God of justice. He's also a God of patience, but we must never try his patience. And when he speaks, we need to listen. Because one day, it might just be that his patience runs out. So living like God won't interfere with our lives, that we can ignore him, we can defy him, is the greatest folly of all. My second and final application of this is called, I've I've entitled, A Civilization Comes to the End of the Road. A Civilization Comes to the End of the Road. So I said earlier that in a very real way, the book of Daniel is not really about Daniel. It's about God and who he is. Uh, And it's a book about God who intervenes in the history of nations. But here in this chapter, it's particularly about God as judge in chapter 5. So God judges Belshazzar, but he also judges a whole civilization, the Babylonians. So this chapter, as we've already thought about, marks the end of one great civilization, the the Babylonian civilization, and the rise of the Medo-Persian civilization. After that you have the Greeks, and then you have the Romans, and of course that's when Christ comes. Now, I think that we are living through the final stages of another civilization, and it's one that we call the Western world. Uh, And this is what I'm going to argue this morning. My point is this, that I increasingly believe that God has weighed the West in his balance and found it wanting. And so this morning, uh, I want to think for a few minutes about nations in this world that, that... have roots that were deeply influenced by the Bible and how a powerful elite is now digging up those roots and the consequences are proving to be catastrophic for the world. (coughs) Now, I'm not going to think this morning about what we do about it. That's a very difficult question. I'll save that for another time and there are no easy answers. But what I want to speak about for a few minutes is is nations in the world, many of whom are represented here, that have what I'm going to call a Protestant heritage. So the United Kingdom, the United States, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, the Netherlands, Germany, Scandinavia, and other nations as well. So all of these nations and others also were, were deeply shaped by ideas that, that mainly emerged during the 16th century Protestant Reformation 
when the Bible for the first time was translated into the vernacular, into the common language of the ordinary people. So the Bible was kind of unleashed upon ordinary people after many years of, many centuries of the kind of superstitions of the Roman Catholic Church in medieval Europe and beyond. So what were the, what, what are these ideas that kind of came from the Bible and from the Protestant Reformation? So what I'm asking this morning is, what kind of a world emerged that would not have emerged unless people were soaked in patterns of thought that are found in the Bible? So, I'm thinking this morning about what we might call our Judeo-Christian heritage. Now, uh, this is a, a thumbnail sketch, and I'm painting with very broad, uh, wide brushes, with big strokes, and this will inevitably be simplistic. But let me suggest four things that, are, that I think have emerged from the Protestant Reformation, and also from the various evangelical awakenings and revivals that we've had in the last two or three hundred years. Here's the first thing that is the key thing to our Judeo-Christian heritage, if you're from a nation like mine. Uh, the idea, this idea that the centre of all things is God... You might say that's obvious, but the point is that the centre of reality is not nature. It's not the spirits of your ancestors as it would be in animism. It's not demons. It's not the moon or the sun, as you find in some versions of paganism. So it's not nature itself. The centre of all things is God himself. And God is a personal being. Okay, okay so he, is, he has characteristics uh, he does things. He can be known. He's a God of relationships. And because God is real, and he is at the centre of all things, then truth can be known. So truth is to be discovered. It's not to be invented by you or I. It is to be discovered. So truth is rooted in who God is, and it is available to us through revelation in the Bible. It's available to us through the, 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 the book of the Bible. It's also available to us through the book of creation, which we can study through scientific investigation, and to some extent God is available, a knowledge of God or truth is available to us through reason. But the point is that God is a God of truth, and he's revealed who he is, the God of truth. Here's the second thing about the Judeo-Christian deposit, that there is a higher throne than every throne in this world, and there is a higher law than every law in this world, the throne of God and the law of God. And here's the point, that human laws that reflect the law of God make healthy societies and, laws that reject, and laws, human laws that reject the laws of God, in the end those societies crumble and perish. And because there is a higher throne, everyone, from you and I to Pol Pot in Cambodia and Adolf Hitler and all the rest of the people in history, one day they will all account to God for their lives. We are not self-accounting. We, don't, we, don't, are, we are not the final arbiter of our lives. God is, and we will one day account to God at the divine throne. Here's the third thing about the Judeo-Christian heritage that came from Scripture. Uh, all people, <clears throat> every human being is made in the image of God, and, we, and every life is to some extent sacred, and we possess divine value. And that divine value is unrelated to your skin colour, it's unrelated to your sex or to your status. So, here's the thing in a Judeo-Christian worldview. Ordinary people matter. 
And because of that, societies should be designed from the bottom up. So in God's world, there are no big elites who, should, who, who are allowed to cream off the wealth and keep everybody in poverty uh, and in destitution so they can be controlled more easily, as you see in some nations. Society should be design, designed from the bottom up. There are no elites, there are no big people. And because ordinary people, and there are no ordinary people really, they, they take centre stage and the, the, the biblical worldview demands that we treat all people with dignity because people really do matter. And that means that people's freedoms are important. Religious freedom, freedom of conscience, freedom of expression, freedom of the press. And that means that individuals should be, should be ruled by the rule of law, not the rule of men. So individuals should be free from arbitrary arrest, from arbitrary punishment, and from confiscation of what is theirs. In fact, the state's job is to protect people. So, in a Judeo-Christian worldview, uh, rule is by law, not by fear. And I've lived in countries where rule is by fear. Also, because people are sinful in the Judeo-Christian worldview, then power must be dispersed. It mustn't be held by one individual or by one institution. And those who lead are to be servants, ministers. So, kind of coupled with this uh, Judeo-Christian worldview, it's ordinary people who are called to shape history along with, with God and neighbour and each person is an immortal being uh, and each of us has a destiny which transcends every single political system. So human beings are not, are not expendable accidents of evolution and we're not complex machines to be programmed by the state as, as the Marxists in history thought we were. We are Im God's image bearers called to participate in the kingdom of God in this world. Here's the fourth thing from a Judeo-Christian uh, worldview. This is not exhausted by any means. But the fourth thing is that the cornerstone of a society in God's world is the God-ordained family structure of marriage between a man and a woman. And into that union will come children, will make them children, and children are a blessing. They're not a curse on the earth who are going to consume the next generation of the world's resources. Uh, and so that means that lots of things, but one of the things that it means is that motherhood and fatherhood are, are roles that are highly esteemed in the Judeo-Christian worldview. Now, there's lots of other things I, should, I could say to you, but that's a kind of a, a sketch of the Judeo-Christian worldview in like five minutes. Um, now, you don't need me to tell you that during the last 50 years, the Western world has gone through a revolution. So no longer is God, the Judeo-Christian God of the Bible, the centre of reality, nor is reason anymore. Because during the Enlightenment, uh, Europe decided that reason was the centre of all things, went from God to reason. Now we just believe that each person is their own centre. Me, myself, this is the me, myself and I generation. So the eclipse of God has been replaced by the emergence of the self. 
And so we are taught today, <clears throat> this is normal stuff in our syllabuses, in our schools, and this is what the media uh, teach us. Not, most things are not taught, they're caught, of course. But we are taught today that each person must construct their own version of reality for themselves. Their own truth. There is no truth, there's only your truth and my truth. We have to construct our own version of justice. We have to construct our own identity, our own life narrative. And of course we put it all on Instagram to compare with other people's. How well are we doing with our self-constructed existence and life? You can't begin to imagine the pressure that puts on young people having to invent themselves with their own version of their sexuality or their gender or their uh, whatever it is, um, their best picture on Instagram, whatever it is. And it gets even worse than that because everybody's narrative and way of understanding the world and their own truth is equally valued with everybody else's. So to suggest that anybody is wrong in anything that they believe about the world renders you guilty of a hate crime. So there is no ability to arbitrate between anybody's way of living or thinking or their morality. You see, when you get to a situation where people decide that there is no truth, only your truth, it becomes impossible to decide what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad. And who is male and who is female? Everything becomes your personal perspective. And very, long, very soon, the whole of reality kind of unravels. Um, I told you about my, our cat last week. If our cat gets hold of a ball of, of wool and gets hold of the end, it kind of just unravels as he pulls it away. And that's what's happening in the Western world. And you see, if there's no truth that we can agree on, all that is left is power. And then you end up with this massive fight over who has power in the world. So, we find what we would expect going on around us all the time. A world of fragmentation constantly where people can't fight for their power on their own so they get into groups where they fight for power. And people fight over who can claim to be the most victimised group because that group because that gives you the most power. So you want to get yourself into the group which is most victimised. So, so what the, the effect of this is that it sets men against women, it sets black people against white people, it sets the left against the right, even human beings against the planet, transgender activists against feminist activists. And all this plays out on social media with the internet able to transfer ideas and memes and messages across the world in um, nanoseconds. So social media magnifies this fragmentation and this division. It, it's, a, it's beyond anything our grandparents could ever have imagined. And so the result is that we have a world of mistrust, of suspicion and even hatred. So what's happened over the last... 30, 40, 50 years, of course, going back into the history of our philosophers who laid the foundations of all of this, that we've literally abandoned one worldview for another. And the best definition I've ever been able to come across, which is a friend of mine in Cambridge, he, he calls this ego-paganism. So we've had nature-paganism where we worship nature. But today we just worship ourselves. We are the centre of reality. Now, here's my point. I'm not sure that Western civilization can 
survive such a radical departure from reality and retain our collective sanity. So, just let me give you a few examples. In the United Kingdom this week, a man won the Woman of the Year Award. A man won the Woman of the Year Award. In the United Kingdom, in a a magazine that had had this Woman of the Year Award. So, in the last two weeks, you've had these, two weeks ago we had these attacks by Hamas on Jewish people uh, in Israel, as you will know. And 260 people were ruthlessly murdered, including babies and children. And hundreds of people gathered all over the world, um, not to protest about what had happened in Israel, but to express their, collect- their collective hatred of Israel and the Jewish people. So in Sydney, you had all these people outside the Israeli embassy shouting, gas the Jews. This was even before Israel retaliated. So it's like categories of good and evil, right and wrong, have just kind of gone up in smoke. This wasn't just Muslims who were shouting gas the Jews. It was lots of young, white Australians who were outside the embassy. You see, what matters is not what's right and wrong. That's been long lost. What matters is what does your group think? And since progressive activists kind of believe that Palestinians are the victims and Israelis are the oppressors, um, then what you must do in these kind of situations is go out and signal your loyalty to the progressive left. And you must hate the Jews. Where were the protesters outside the Iranian embassy who provided the money and the funding for Hamas? They weren't there. Because it just doesn't fit the collective narrative of the progressive left. Just think about the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, which was a terrible, terrible thing. But a a black man was killed. There were thousands of people outside the, the world's embassies protesting about the killing of one man, which was a tragedy. But the killing of all these Jewish people, there were no protesters outside the Iranian embassy. What's happened to our world? In, about a month ago, there was a very famous tree uh, in England that was cut down um, by some vandals. It appears in, in a, a Robin Hood movie with Kevin Costner. Uh, it is this tree. It was cut down by vandals. And there was this huge outrage. And all these people were tweeting or Xing, whatever you do now on, on X, what is called X, isn't it? Uh, about this awful outrage, like this tree was a living thing. Uh, this awful outrage. And we just forget the fact that in the United Kingdom we abort 190,000 babies every year. And it's almost impossible not to conclude that trees matter more than unborn babies. Infinitely more. You know, in the United Kingdom, the Labour Party, who are not in power, are proposing that if they come into power, they want to pass a law, which they will probably never get through Parliament, but they want to pass a law that anybody who misgenders somebody can go to jail for two years. This is in the land that signed the Magna Carta in 1215, the first real statement of human liberty in England. Incredible. Now, I need to stop. But uh, G.K. Chesterton, who was uh, the Catholic kind of apologist from 100 years ago, he said this, Chesterton said, fires will be kindled... He said, a day is coming when fires will be kindled to testify that two and two equals four. 
In other words, they'll need to be because we'll have so departed from reality we won't even believe that two and two equals four. He says, swords will be drawn to prove that leaves are green in summer. And I suggest to you that that that, that time has come. And the question is, is it too late? I don't know. What I do know is that only the gospel is the hope of the world. Only the message of Jesus, who is the truth about the universe, coming into societies, can ever bring any hope in the midst of our unravelling society. So we're not toasting, like we were in Belshazzar's feast, the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood and stone. We're toasting ourselves. We've displaced the living God for our own selves at the centre of reality. And we're worshipping not only ourselves but our sin and we're worshipping the planet and lots of other things. So that my second application, and I wish I had more time to talk to you, is that in this uh, chapter, a civilization has come to the end of the road. And my question is, has ours too? Unless we have revival and reformation, and we must pray for that every day. And when our Daniel moment comes, my prayer is that we shall be bold and speak the truth. Because only the truth will set us free. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for this chapter full of challenging things. We thank you that you are the true and living God and to bow to you and to know your truth is to live and to thrive and to prosper. But we also know that there are many people who don't know this news of Jesus Christ. And we pray for your light to come into a dark world. We believe that all who follow the Lord Jesus, any who follow the Lord Jesus Christ will never walk in darkness but, but, but have the light of life. And we want to be witnesses to that light in our day and generation. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.